All right, so we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 12. If you haven't been with us um, along the journey, we've been preaching out of the book of Matthew for about a year and a few months, uh, just cruising through the book and going line by line. So we're going to put the text up here, but you can also follow along. We're going to go from verse 38 all the way through the end of the chapter in verse 50. Before I start reading about what we're going to bite off today, uh, I wanted to give you some context uh, as, to, as to what we just heard, because it's kind of a continuation of the story. Um, this is nearing the back half of Jesus' ministry, and what we're starting to see now is more and more op- opposition from the religious leaders of the time, these guys called the Pharisees. And so this, this particular interaction that we're, we're going to jump in the middle of here is an interesting one, because the Pharisees go so far as to say that Jesus is doing his miracles and the works of God, the works that he's doing aren't from God. In fact, they're from the devil. And so there's a, there's a few things going on here. There's some religious rules that Jesus is intentionally breaking to kind of offend them a little bit so that they can realize that their priorities are out of order, that God's just not interested in a rule book being thrown at people, but he's interested in people learning how to follow him and be a disciple of Jesus. And he's also raising up the the Pharisees are having this issue because they're the people in power at this time and so Jesus is a threat a direct threat to their power and what they're doing and so this is the first time that we really start to see this thing escalate and uh, in the last passage Jesus throws out a pretty gnarly insult he calls somebody a brood of vipers or a group of people a brood of vipers anyone ever used that in a schoolyard fight no Take it from Jesus. What would Jesus do? He'd call him a brood of vipers. Go after it. But the idea of the brood of vipers that we talked about last week is the distinguishing factor of a viper is what's in it. The distinguishing factor of the viper is what's inside of the viper, and what's inside of the viper is venom. And so in the same passage, we see that Jesus calls him a brood of viper. It's not just a wacky insult. He's saying, you're filled with venom. And he starts to talk about how a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And he basically is saying what's in the heart of a person will come out through their words and will reveal what's going on in their hearts. And so he says, be careful what comes out of the words of your mouth, but more importantly, be careful how you steward your heart. And so he's not just insulting them. He's telling them something very specific in a very direct way. He's saying you're filled with evil And you're saying that I'm doing these miracles because you think I'm filled with evil. But I'm not evil. You're evil. (laughs) I know you are, but what am I, right? (laughs) Continuing the childhood theme. So that's where we pick up. We We come out of this scene where Jesus talks about the importance of what's in you and stewarding the stuff that's going on inside of you. And he continues here. So we're going to start up in verse 38. He says, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Doesn't get any better for these guys, right? They're like, we just asked for a sign. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no one will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish— So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up in judgment at this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. 
And now, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she, she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now, something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and it takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak with you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who is my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is getting pretty intense here. <laughs> There's sometimes where Jesus kind of lets stuff roll off his back and he doesn't, he doesn't go after it. And this is, uh, this is not one of them. He's very interested in correcting the thinking of the religious leaders. I think what we can miss in a passage like this is we can read it and say, man, he's so harsh on the Pharisees. He's calling them an evil generation and a brood of vipers. But we didn't see the preceding 12 chapters where with every one of these interactions, it kind of escalates a little bit. You know, like Jesus gives them a different chance and they say, you know, is it lawful to, to uh, heal somebody on the Sabbath? And rather than saying, dude, get out of your rule book and going directly at him, he just heals somebody on the Sabbath. And they're super friend and they want to kill him. Right? And so there's this like escalation thing that happens to the point where Jesus is like, at this case, he's just like letting it fly. This is an evil generation. And the Pharisees seem to ask something that's seemingly innocuous. They say, will you show us a sign? Teacher, show us a sign. We'd like to see a sign from you. And he just lets gun blaze at them. So let's, let's unpack a little bit about what he actually says here because it's kind of a little bit confusing. So he compares, first of all, this generation to Jonah. He says that similar to like the sign that was given to the prophet jo through the prophet Jonah to the city of Nineveh is what's going on with this generation now, but way more because Jesus is the son of God and, and Jonah was just a prophet. If you think about back, if you're familiar with the story of Jonah, it was about the 8th century BC. It's kind of a funny story, right? It's the one that's on the felt board in every Sunday school class and Jonah gets swallowed by the whale, right? What happens uh, with Jonah getting swallowed by the whales, God tells him to go to the biggest, most important city of that day, which is Nineveh. It's this massive city with millions of people in it. And, and, and the Bible actually calls it a great, an exceedingly great city. And he says, go into that city and prophesy against it and tell that city that I'm going to bring judgment against that city. And Jonah, interestingly, goes exactly in the opposite direction. He wants no part of it. And it's hard to tell exactly what's going on in, in Jonah's mind. Some people think it was fierce racism. Like, I don't, want you to be, I don't want you to be forgiving to that city. And if I go and I prophesy over it, I know how merciful you are, and you'll probably have mercy on that. Uh, it, it's, it's highly likely from the text that that's, that's what was going on with Jonah. Um, but either way, he turns the other direction and he goes uh, on this ship in exactly the opposite direction from Nineveh. 
and the ship comes under a huge storm, and the, everybody on the note, everybody on the boat knows that this is a storm from God. This is not like one of those like little waves over the bow. It comes out of nowhere, hits them hard, and they're like, "This is judgment. Who did wrong?" And they cast lots, and the lots fall to Jonah. And they're like, "Why did you do this to us? Right? Like, what is going on?" And Jonah says, "Just throw me overboard. Throw me overboard, and this is going to end right now." He really does not want to go to Nineveh, right? I mean, <laughs> just throw me overboard. And so the nice sailors go like. No, like, we don't want to do that. We don't want to kill somebody on our sailing trip right now. So let's throw all of our cargo overboard, and let's see if we can make it. And as they're throwing cargo overboard, it starts smacking the boat even harder and harder. And finally, they're like, dude, we've got no choice. This one's on you. <laughs> throw him over, and he flies in the water. And a giant fish swallows Jonah. Giant fish swallows Jonah. And in the middle of the book of Jonah are all these like songs and poems about what he's doing inside the fish. <laughs> and he's like kicking it there. And you know, that's a good long quiet time. Three days in the belly of a fish. You're just sitting there going like, all right, God, what are we doing here? You know, what's, what's going on, etc., etc. God does some work on Jonah's heart, spits him out onto the shore. And then Jonah can go over to Nineveh after his I guess that counts as repentance, right? It's kind of like forced repentance, if you will. But he turns from his ways. He goes into the middle of the city of Nineveh. Now, mind you, nobody in the city of Nineveh knows what's going on with Jonah's past. They just know that this wacky prophet from down the way, who represents a foreign god, comes into the middle of their city. Mind you, this is like millions of people type city. This is like going out into the middle of Market Street or something. It's actually not even close to that. It's like probably New York City. Going in the middle of Soho, and just saying, repent, for the God of Israel is going to destroy Nineveh. And somehow, it works. <laughs> somehow, the entire city goes into sackcloth and ashes, led by the king, and they totally repent, and God spares the city. And so, if you back this out into what Jesus is saying here, he's saying that some wacky prophet from the neighboring city, with no signs and wonders— walks into a city of old and says, you guys are wicked. You need to repent. I'm representing God. And if you don't repent, he's going to destroy this city. And everybody repents. Like everybody turns to God. And Jesus is saying, those people are going to stand up at the judgment and they're going to judge you. Because here I am, the son of the living God, doing signs and wonders all over the place, preaching with authority and boldness that's supernatural and you're rejecting. This isn't enough to bring you into a place of repentance and faith. And he says, this, this heathen, old, wicked city is doing better than you and they're going to stand up at the judgment. That would not, you know, you gotta, these are the religious leaders. They think they're doing the best with God. And he says you're doing worse than the worst heathens of the Old Testament. He then goes to the Queen of Sheba. 13th century BC or so, 1 Kings chapter 10, if you want to go and look at the story. I'll give you the short version here. Solomon, in all of his splendor and riches, is shining light by his great wisdom. And all of the neighboring cities and towns are like, who is this guy? Clearly God is on his life. 
And there's this one foreign king way off in the south, or queen way off in the south, who hears about Solomon's great wisdom and turns, leaves her palace, brings tons of spices and riches and all of this other stuff, travels all of these miles, and goes to Solomon and says, what's going on with you? Tell me what's going on. In this place of humility, she's asking Solomon to give her wisdom and understanding. And Jesus equates that, in this case, as responding to the miraculous work of that time. It was clear that God had imparted his wisdom on Solomon, and it was even way more clear that he did that for Jesus. And so he says, the Queen of Sheba, she's going to step up, and she's going to judge you when you get down to it. Because the, the revelation that you've been given far surpasses anything that could have been throughout all of history. There's never been a revelation like this of God. And you're still in a place where the hardness of heart is dominating. And so the first block of this text, the first thing that I'd like to highlight in this section, the point of this first section is how much does it take for you to respond to God? How much does it take in terms of revelation coming into your life for you to then stop and go, God is doing something here, and I need to turn from whatever I'm doing right now, and I need to make this the most important thing. How much, the, the first part of this text is all about how much does it take on God's end to do that. And the crazy thing about this is that at the root of it, what God's interested in is faith. God's interested in faith. It says in the New Testament that, that the only way that we can please God is by faith. There's this big deal in the Bible about faith. And then we see these crazy stories in the New Testament. My favorite one is the centurion, where the centurion comes to Jesus. And, and the centurion is, again, a Gentile. It's not a Jewish guy. It's outside of the normal person that would come up to a rabbi and ask this. But the centurion comes up to Jesus and he says, my, my daughter is sick. I need you to come and I need you to heal her. Actually, is it his servant? It's his servant. And, and, and Jesus says, great, let's go. I'll go to your house. And he says, you don't need to go to my house. He says, I'm a man under authority. I know what authority looks like. And you're the one with authority. I know that. So you can just speak the word and my servant will be healed right now. You don't need to come to my house. And check this out. God is blown away by this centurion's faith. It's the exact opposite of what we see here. Jesus is astounded in both cases. But one, he's like, are you kidding? Like, what else do you need me to do? I, I just healed that guy's withered hand. <laughs> like, what do you want me to do? And in the other one, Jesus says, like, I'll go with you. And it's almost like so much presumption that he says, hey, wait, you don't need to do it that way, Jesus. You know? It's like if God told you to, like, do something in prayer, and you're like, wait, we don't need to do it that way. Right? It's kind of it's crazy. It's, he's like, we don't need to do it that way. You have all authority. And he's like, whoa, I've never seen faith like this in Israel. This is amazing faith. And when I read something like this, when I read both sides, 
I don't know about you, but it does something in me. It stirs something in me where I'm like, God, I don't know exactly what the formula is, or I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I so want to be the centurion. Like, I, I want to astound God with my faith. I want to be the one where he just whispers in my direction, and I'm like, I just discerned that that was the Lord, and that's enough for me, and I'm going. Now, I think oftentimes I've seen in the Christian church this done really poorly. So I'm going to give you a little piece of wisdom. This is my opinion. But I'm going to give you a little piece of wisdom right on the heels of that highly inspiring statement where we're all like, <laughs> yes. I've seen a lot of people do stupid things off of something that they felt like the whisper of God. And then they grabbed hold of it and ran in that direction and it wasn't God at all. Right, so there's some wisdom that we need to have in this process. And the way I put it to a lot of people now is, you don't take a tiny small word from the Lord and then move to Africa, which is like this massive, huge call over here. You don't take the whisper and then risk your whole family's life based upon a whisper. It's not immaturity to test a big word, and we'll talk about what a great testing looks like because Jesus actually mentions it in this passage. But what we want to do is we want to have the right systems and structures in our life. We want to know our place of maturity. I know I'm not that mature in the Lord yet. So when I hear the Lord's whisper and it's something really big, what I do is I go and I take it and I pray on it for a week. I take it to my pastors and I tell them about it and they pray on it for a week. And then I take it to my wife. That's reverse order. I do that first. And then, <laughs> and then, and then I take it to my friends. You get the idea. This isn't a one-stop shop thing. And that I'm still learning. But the idea is that you're sensitive enough for it to move you. You're sensitive enough where it's a soft heart where you're like, God, if this is you, I'm going to say yes based on faith that your spirit will empower me to do this even if there's every kind of resistance inside of me right now. Because if your yes is contingent upon you feeling like you have the self-discipline to do it, you'll say no every time. Your yes has got to be based on a grace that's given to you by God. That's how we follow Jesus in the hardest places is he tells us something and we go, oh my gosh, I don't know if you can do that. And he's like, you can't do that. And then he's like, but my grace is sufficient you. My power is perfected in your weakness. Invite me into it. And you can say yes now, knowing that the grace will be there as you walk this out. Right? And so it's the soft heart. It's the, it's the how the, the, the words land on your heart that matter here. It's the whisper. Is that enough for you to go, wait a second? Caught it. Maybe I don't act on it immediately, but this is a treasure to me that I'm going to take into my prayer closet. I'm going to take to my spiritual leadership. I'm going to take into the word, and I'm going to test it, and I'm going to honor this thing, and I'm going to treasure it. Because if this is, if this is the Lord, I want just this tiny little smidgen of a thing to move me. And so it's about the amount of honor that we attach to the words that are going forth from the Lord. How, mu how good are you at stewarding the words that come your way? And if you're not good at discerning, join the club. Join the club. That's okay. That's what community's for. That's what spiritual leadership is for. That's what 
connection with the Lord in your quiet times and the Holy Spirit who leads and guides us into all truth, that's what all of that is for. But it's about the honor that we attach to those words and maintaining the softness of heart that when those things come, we go, man, that last one didn't work out as I thought it would, but I'm going to do it better this time. God, we're going to walk through it this time. I'm going to grab hold of whatever you whisper to me. And then we get the big words, which are the really fun ones, the kaboom prophetic words, and then we get the whispers, and we honor all of them. What's interesting about the Lord is that the package is oftentimes offensive. The package is oftentimes confusing. So it's this interesting thing where questions are a critical part of progressing in your Christian life. They're not a lack of faith. Questions for God do not indicate a lack of faith. Some read this passage and they go, man, the Pharisees had such a lack of faith they were asking for a sign. But do you know what happened when uh, Gideon asked for a sign? The Lord said, yeah, awesome, happy to. He gets an amazing sign, and then Gideon goes, how about one more? <laughs> and God's like, totally. Here's another confirmation. And Gideon goes, I know, but this is kind of a big word. Like, I got to lead people into battle. Can we go one more time? And God's like, yeah. So what's going on here? Is it lack of faith to ask for a sign like this, or is it lack of, not lack of faith to ask like a sign for Gideon? Is it lack of faith to ask God questions, or is it not lack of faith to ask God questions? And the answer has everything to do with the state of your heart as you're asking those questions. I've heard it said this way. Questions raised in the atmosphere of trust lead to revelation. Questions raised in the environment of mistrust lead to further unbelief. Questions raised in the atmosphere of trust lead to revelation. And we can't develop trust with God without asking questions. Some of my most special moments with God is when I'm utterly confused about a situation, and I go to him and I'm like, God, like, I have no idea what's going on here. I have no idea what's going on here. In fact, it feels exactly opposite of what I thought you'd be doing right now. And one of the ones that I've shared with you guys before in the past, it just fits so perfectly for this, I went on staff with InterVarsity for four years after my college career. Uh, before I did that, I told my father that I wasn't going to follow him into business, and he told me that the door was shut if I chose to go on staff with InterVarsity. And so when I was going into it, I truly turned down this path to join my dad in this highly lucrative business. But I felt like it was the Lord, and so I went on staff with InterVarsity for four years when I was coming off staff with InterVarsity, so nobly turning down riches before, I might add. I come out thinking that the Lord is just going to blow the doors open for me in my career realm now that I'm, you know, going to go seek him and be a missionary in the marketplace. And the first thing that happens is I get no job opportunities, uh, and I get a temp job at ask.com, not Google, ask.com. <laughs> Could it get any lower in the internet realm than... <laughs> ask Jeeves. Uh, 
ask.com for 16 bucks an hour, which at the time was not enough to, was not enough to, uh, is that a lot for a temp job? Oh, got it. Well, when you're trying to, when you're trying to provide for your brand new wife living in the Bay Area, it's not a lot of money. So, uh, so I get this temp job and about a month into it, I get fired. No joke. So I thought, you know, it's not going well. I get, I get fired from my temp job at ask.com. So I'm not a detail-oriented person. I was, so when you post a job, there's a drop-down that says which area of the world you're in, and it's alphabetized. First of all, that idiot engineer who alphabetized that list given that 98% of their business is in the United States, should be removed from his job. <laughs> I'm over it, I promise. The Lord's worked the bitterness out of me. But I started posting all these jobs to Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah. Not a detail-oriented person. Um, so anyways, I rightly get fired from this job. And I'm like, okay, God, like, what the heck, right? And, you know, I don't know what's going on here. And then uh, I get a call from, or my, my, my dad actually hooks me up with an interview at Morgan Stanley in their private wealth management office. And so I go in, and I just, like, home run this interview. And I walked out. I'm like, see, I knew the favor of the Lord was going to be here. <laughs> and here we go. Here's where the, the, the career snowball happens. And... Um, like two days later, they call me and say, the job we were going to interview you for has just been filled, so uh, we no longer need you to come in. Thanks, but no thanks. And so now, I'm unemployed. Uh, I don't know where our provision is going to come from. I just got fired from ask.com. <laughs> and now this, like, door that I thought was the provision of the Lord just got slammed in my face. And I was just like... I don't get it, God. I don't understand. I really, I just don't understand. And I don't know if any of you guys can relate to this, but all of this, like, almost, it wasn't anger, but it was like injustice started to rise up in my heart. And I was just like, this, this is not right. Like, I laid down my life, and I did everything right, and now I'm in this place where nothing is going right. Like, how is that supposed to seek first the kingdom, and then all these other things are added to you? I sought first the kingdom. Where's all this other stuff? <laughs> and I felt that thing start to rise up, and I had a Bible passage for it, too. So I just... <laughs> Here, God, it's biblical. My groanings are biblical. <laughs> and at that time, I was standing in my kitchen... And I remember, I just said, I need to go seek the Lord. There's stuff going on in my heart right now that is not the fruit of the Spirit. I can feel this, and it's not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, or self-control. There's stuff going on in here that needs to shift, and the only way that I know how to shift what's going on in here is by going to worship. And so I went into our, our second bedroom. I closed the door. I told Suki I was going to go in there. And I just got on my face before the Lord, and I turned on some worship songs, and it was like 
everything in me was telling me to accuse God, to push in the other direction, to not submit, all of this stuff. And I just turned on the worship music, and I was like, okay, God, like, I have no idea why this is going on, but I choose to worship you in this time. And I, and I declare with my actions that you're still worthy to be praised, even though I have no idea what's going on in my life. And so I worship the song, I worship the Lord for seriously like a song and a half. And all of a sudden I just like so much joy, so much peace, so much release, so much trust. And I like, I came out of there and I was like, we're good. And Suki's like, what, you know, like what happened in there? Like, we're good. Like I worshiped, I, I caught a glimpse of God and like everything is good. Now, I use that as an illustration because it was a marked moment of my life where forevermore, whenever I get into that place now where I'm unsettled or I'm tempted to question God or I'm tempted to accuse him or anything like where I'm like, I don't like what's going on in me right now, my immediate response is get in private and go worship God and fill your vantage with who he is. Because everything that's a problem down here is only a problem in that he can't solve it. As it feels really big down here, you need to magnify him, with, which is exactly what worship is, because then he can come and he can eclipse your problem. You can then see from his perspective what's going on on life, and it frames the whole thing differently. It's like, oh, yeah, like you'll never leave me, nor forsake me. So there must be something. I don't know the future. You know the future. So there must be something going on here that I'm not, I'm not seeing because you say that everything works out for good for those who love you. And so clearly I'm not seeing clearly because this doesn't look very good, right? Like there's this whole like shifting of perspective thing that happens and it totally transfers your heart into a different place where now you can ask the questions that you need to be asking, but it's from a place of trust and faith, not a place from panic, anxiety, an accusation. One is incredibly pleasing to God and one is not because one is rooted in faith and the other one is rooted in accusation and unbelief. Now I use that illustration because it's easy and it's fast and it's real and I love it and it did a lot in my life but believe me, not all of them end in five minutes of worship. Right? When we're talking about big problems this is like a constant stewarding of your own heart where you're just constantly coming back to the Lord and you're saying, Lord, keep me soft as I go through this. This has the potential to harden me. And the last thing that I want to do is be resistant to you. Next time you come and you whisper something, it's related to this area. I don't want to harden up. You know, like picture this situation and then two months down the line, the Lord says, I want you to give away, you know, thousand dollars which i don't have a thousand dollars give away a thousand dollars all of a sudden i have all this mistrust from from you're not my provider you didn't provide for me well there's part of my heart that's been hardened based on this experience that god was using to advance me but it ended up hardening me because i allowed myself to move into unbelief and so one of the biggest things that we need to do is we need to be constantly stewarding our heart continually stewarding our heart and when we see something coming in that's going to make us more rigid than we want to be, we just go, wait a second. I need my brothers and sisters to pray for me. I need to get before the Lord. I need to worship. I need to get in my word. I need to meditate. 
I need to get in a scripture that says exactly the opposite of the way that I'm feeling, and I need to just like chew it until my insides start to change. And then we're in a place where we're able to ask questions because asking questions is the very thing that allows us to advance in the Christian faith. If we think that questions come out of unbelief all the time, like those two things are created, are equal, we'll, never, we'll stop asking questions. And then we look in Mark 4, where, where the disciples interact with this parable where they're utterly confused. The disciples are as confused as anybody out there. Jesus says, you know, the, the kingdom of God is like a, a, a sower, and he starts throwing seed around, and some of it falls on this path, and some of it falls on this path, and this path. Everybody in the crowd is like, that sermon, I didn't get a thing out of that. I don't even know what he was talking about. What was that parable? And Jesus constantly speaks in parables, and then he waits for those to come to him to ask him the question as to what they mean. Right? And so the disciples in Mark 4, they're honored with their, they honor God with their question. They come to him and they say, God, I had no idea, Jesus, I had no idea what you're talking about. They're just as confused as everybody. I have no idea what you're talking about. And Jesus says, well, here's the answer. Good job coming to me. And so the whole thing is like this stewarding of the heart, being continually just asking the Lord, like, I don't understand. And if you answer me or not, is not contingent. my faith is not contingent upon you answering me right now. My faith is not contingent upon you answering me right now. The reason why I'm asking is because I want to be like the end of John, where you say, now I call you a friend because you know what I'm up to. That's what's driving my life. You're not on trial. I just want to be your friend. You can't develop trust without questions. Cool, let's jump into the second part of this passage because there's a whole other block that I want to talk about. Part two, it starts in verse 43. Jesus strangely goes into this weird thing about impure spirits coming out of a person. And it goes through arid places. He's like, he does this deliverance, like, training in the middle of this passage that has to do with faith and belief and, and stuff like that. He's like, you know, you're going to get judged by Nineveh, and you're going to get judged by Jonah, and then spirits, you know, when you cast them out, they, it's, it's like a very strange transition here. So I'll read it. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes, and it takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. What is he talking about on the heels of how this generation is responding to the revelation of God? I find it strange. Does anyone else find it strange? No? Okay. So I'd propose to you that what Jesus is talking about here is that he's performing somewhat— of a cleaning of the house on a generation in his time. It's kind of like an exorcism on a generation. So what happens in an exorcism? In an exorcism, 
Somebody with spiritual authority comes to an individual and says, there's demonic forces in your life that shouldn't be in your life. In Jesus' name. Jesus didn't say that, but everyone else does. In Jesus' name, get out of the individual, right? And there's a cleaning. The evil leaves, and what's left is a clean container. Jesus, through his, his entire ministry, is, is relating his ministry to an exorcism of a generation. And he said, that's why at the end he says, this is how it will be, this is how it will be with this wicked generation. And so what he's saying is, through my teaching, I've come here, I've shown you what's wicked. I just called those people a brood of vipers. That qualifies. I've shown you the heart of God as I've gone around and I've healed people and I've cast out devils, healed the blind, I've healed the sick. I stop. I'm interested in the single person. I'm going on my way. Blind Bartimaeus runs up and everybody else pushes him away, but I stop and I turn and I care about the one. That's a revelation of God. What he's doing is he's cleaning the house. He's cleaning the thinking of an entire generation who's been polluted by these teachings of the Pharisees and others. And he's coming in and he's saying, that's not how God is at all. God's like this. Let me show you. Be healed on the Sabbath. Let me tell you this teaching. This is who God is. And so what Jesus' whole ministry is, as he goes around and he does all these different things, it's similar to like house cleaning on an individual, but for a generation. And so what he says to the Pharisees is he says, basically, I'm going to do this house cleaning for this generation, and your leadership is risking them being worse off when I leave than when I showed up. The thing that I find interesting about it for us is that there's a couple things here. So the first thing that Jesus is doing is he's showing people what God is really like, and he's showing people what it looks like to make a dwelling place that is conducive for a life with God. And I would propose to you that God is always doing that in your life. Those two things. It's what Jesus spent all of his time doing. And I would, I would, I would propose to you that right now that God is doing those two exact things in your life right now. He's showing you what God is really like. And he's showing you what it looks like to make a dwelling place inside of you that's conducive for a life with him filling that dwelling place. He is doing that in your life right now. I don't care the circumstances that you're going under. Like, that is what he was about. He was going everywhere doing this, and, he, and he, he, he likens it to going into a house and cleaning it out and preparing it and making it all perfect. Why? So that the king of glory can come and fill that space. What Jesus is saying and why he went so ballistic on them for accusing the Holy Spirit of being Beelzebub, calling the power that was going through him the, the, the king of, or the prince of demons, the Lord of the flies. The reason why he went so crazy in the last, in the last chapter about that accusation is because it now leads to him cleaning a house with nothing to fill it. They just accused the Holy Spirit of being Beelzebub, and he goes crazy on him because now it's leaving a generation with an unoccupied place. He's swept it. He's cleaned it. He's reformed their mind. They're all ready to become the dwelling place for God. And these religious leaders are threatening that, and that's why he's going so aggressively at them. But for us, we need to get this. This is what Jesus is doing all the time in your life. He's doing it right now. 
He's showing you how good God is. He is revealing God to you. And the second thing is he's talking about what does it look like for you to prepare your heart and your insides to be a dwelling place for him? And as we do that, the important thing is is that we need to fill those unoccupied places. If you're just spending all of your time just cleaning up, my whole life is repentance. My whole life is just going into the closet and saying, I don't like that, and I don't like that, and I'm so consumed with this. You're not spending any of the time when you go through repentance, you, what you're doing is you're, you're taking something and you're saying, this space was previously occupied by something that's not God. I'm changing the way I do things. That goes out, and then the important part is that comes in. And so Jesus is constantly doing this work, but the crazy thing is he doesn't force the second part on this generation. He doesn't say hey, as I clean up your house, the Holy Spirit will just swoop right in and occupy that space. He wouldn't do that because he's empowered our invitation to such a strong place that what he'll do is he'll come in, he'll reveal God, he'll teach you how to clean up your house, and then it's up to you to make the invitation, oh God, there's nothing more in my life than I'd want for you to fill that space, for you to fill that space. When you tell me that that thing in my life that I know isn't good for me and you want to get rid of it, like, yes, let's, let, let's get rid of it because the vision behind it is that then there's an occupiable place for you to enter and for you to make your dwelling place. I have so many stories. I mean, this, this is everywhere in my life. I literally think this is happening all the time. That the process of sanctification is this. It's like you're changing the way you think. You invite more of God into that place. You give up something that's not good for you. You invite God into that place. And all of a sudden, all that you're doing and everything about you, your minds, your will, your emotion, it's all lined up with God because of this constant process of, this isn't good for me. I know it's not. Please fill that spot with something better. And the next thing you know, after years and years of doing this process, your, your thoughts are like his. And it's not blasphemy to say that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it ends it with, we have the mind of Christ. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is all about this sanctification process where at the end of it, you have the mind of Christ. And you get to walk in his thinking, and you get to do this earth where you lose your job, and you're like, for a minute there, that actually scared me. But then I realized I'm his. That person really hurt my heart. They really offended me. And then I spent time with you, and you healed me. Right? Like, over time, it just doesn't, it just doesn't last as long. It's just, it just starts to be second nature, and we start to view the world through his eyes. So there's two applications, or there's two challenges that I want to give you out of this passage. The first one is let's strive to be one who is moved by every move of his spirit and unmoved by anything that we experience down here. Totally moved by him by the gentlest blow of the wind and totally unmoved by the most forceful thing that we can face down here. I know we're not there, but this is what we're going for. This is what we're going for that he can just whisper and we're like, yes, boom. 
and the world can shout. We're like, huh? (laughs) The nations can rage, and we have his perspective. Why aren't you flying off the handle right now with fear and anxiety? It's like, oh, because I see differently. So let's strive to be those people that are moved by his spirit and nothing else. And then the second one is yielding to the work that is going on in your life right now. He is moving in your circumstances to clean up your home and to make it the perfect dwelling place for his spirit. Right now in your life, he's showing you who he is and he's showing you the things that are in your life that aren't conducive to him inhabiting the center of your heart. And so ask him what those things are. Find out what he's doing. Ask him if he'll pull you in behind the mystery that is the sanctification process that's going on in you right now. It's a great work. He is good at what he does. He is the great sanctifier. And he will use life circumstances. He will use everything that comes our way to create this dwelling place inside of you where the king of glory can come and be like, yes. Like, that is a home fit for me. That's why I created you. So that I could sit right there on that throne that you've created right there. That's what we're going after. So let's, uh, let's close with a worship song and let's, uh, let's pray. stand. We have a, um, an awesome anointed prayer ministry team right over here on the left. They are going to be up here ready to pray for whoever wants to respond in any kind of way, whether it was directly in line with the message or if it's just something in your life that you want prayer for, come and get prayer. These guys are up here. They have name badges. And we're just going to spend uh, a song or two worshiping the Lord. And uh, if you get done before we are done, nothing wrong with that. Feel free to to go enjoy your Sunday. But let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you for who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be. God, as we look at the scriptures, Lord, it's so clear that you're the one that's doing the heavy lifting in terms of coming in and cleaning our homes and designing a house with furniture and floors and lights and all of this stuff that's just like perfectly conducive to how you'd want to live. And God, thank you that it's the privilege of our life to be vessels that you can inhabit. We can be jars of clay that you can fill with your glory. And so, Lord, we just thank you for the work that you're doing, God. I ask, God, that as we worship, as we pray, God, I pray not because we need to know, but because we want to be your friends. Would you show us what you're doing? 
Would you show us the great work that's going on? Would you show us how you're using situations and circumstances? Would you give us a peek into the most beautiful, majestic mind that we could ever imagine, God, into how you use different things, God, to, to, to create this inhabiting place for you, God? And God, we also pray, God, that just in that process, we would be able to be like the centurion, God, that we would have astounding faith, God, that we would have this anchoring place in our life, God, that we don't have it all figured out, that this Christian life was filled with mystery and filled with questions, but we have an anchor that's set deep in the ground that says you are good and you are worthy and you are faithful and you're all the things that you've said you are. We just don't understand. Would you sink an anchor deep in the soil such that we can live life from that vantage place and that vantage place alone, God? We thank you for the work of your hand, and we invite you to do a, a miraculous worship, but miraculous time in this, in this time of worship and in this time of prayer. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship. <laughs>